All right, here we go. You may be seated. Get down on your couch, whatever, you're, wherever you are. If you're all alone, we really feel bad that you that at least you can tune in and be with us. But we look for the day when uh, no one has to be alone. You can just be here and and come, and we can be together. Oh man, twelve weeks of this we've been doing. It. How many think it's gone fast? We have a few people here. The time has gone fast. Nobody. I knew you're nobody. Oh, for you? Yeah. How, but for me, it's gone really slow. But then when I think three months, it's like, uh, well, that's not so bad. We, we, we can endure that, I guess. So the virus crisis is still with us. Uh, maybe you are fed up and you can't get excited about one more week of this. But I want you to think about the week that Jesus is looking forward to as we start in John 12. Entering the most famous week in history. Um, and then the long-awaited announcement that we're going to start with. Um, uh, not the first verse, but he's going to say the hour has come. And it's, I think, even more momentous, if that's possible, than the seven days when God created the, the earth. Uh, this, would be, this would be a week of extraordinary recreation. Not making something glorious out of nothing, but God actually making something out of a wretched, inglorious mess of a world. And so redemption, in a way, is even bigger than creation. Uh, that's what we're going to be thinking about here. I've been, I've been thinking about the mindset that Jesus brought to that week. What was it that helped him um, enter it with confidence and resolve? And then to end up on the following Sunday, because where we are now is on, on Palm Sunday, but the following Sunday, here he will be, the conqueror of sin and death and hell and the devil and all of that in glorious resurrection. What an amazing week. I mean, I can hardly even fathom what that could have, would have been like. Here's Jesus on one side of this amazing chasm where it starts with this triumphal entry and it looks like everything's great, but he knows he's going to die. And then at the end, the week has changed everything. So what we can find out from Jesus, I think it's going to be pretty important about facing a, a week of horrendous challenge. Uh, our week won't be like his, but we can have some pretty crummy weeks. Uh, what resources then do we call on uh, when a week lies heavy on your soul? You might have a surgery coming up, or you've just looked at these riots and all of this, and maybe you're, you're like my son Sanford, who is a black man in L.A. He's being pushed by different people around him to join the Black Lives Matter um, protests. He doesn't really want to do that, but he, he's got some heart for actually what's going on, and yet he has been wanting to be a policeman. And can you imagine all the conflict of, of interesting emotions that must be going through him? Uh, but here is Jesus admitting to, uh, before this curious crowd, right now my soul is deeply troubled, and you really might be there. So how do you get from troubled to triumphant. Uh, what, what does that take? And so we're going to get started in John and start with John 12, 20. This passage contains the last public words of Jesus in John's gospel. Uh, 
really the clearest and most public statement of the scandal of the cross. And maybe as we listen to these words that we can imagine that we're actually there. The middle verse of our passage today is a clap of thunder. That's what the people heard. At least some of them said it's thunder. And this is the father speaking. The only time he does that in the fourth gospel. And in many ways, it says to the son what the whole key to the end of his life is. In fact, his whole life is perhaps the key to the whole universe. Almost every verse in this passage deserves its own sermon. Uh, Ideas so big, they sound like cliches, and in some ways I'm embarrassed to even preach it in such a quick way, or even at all. It is so momentous that I don't know that we can even wrap our hearts around what's going on here, but we're going to try. It starts with some strangers coming in. It says, now, among those who went up to worship at the Passover festival were some Greeks. And these approached Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with the request, sir, we would like to meet Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now, these Greeks were not uh, Greek-speaking Jews. These were actual Gentiles who were uh, perhaps even from Palestine. They didn't have to be from Greece. But they, were, uh, they had come, and uh, they were interested, somehow attracted to the um, worship of Israel. And somehow they had heard about Jesus. It wasn't hard to hear about him. Here's the triumphal entry. Here's all the, all the uproar that's going around because he had raised Lazarus. And so I don't know if they just want to take selfies with Jesus, get some time with this celebrity you know, from the Palm Parade who raises dead people. Uh, and maybe they were very sincere in wanting to see Jesus as far as they knew. Of course, there was a big gap in their thinking because I'm sure that they thought, as many people, that Jesus, if he's the real McCoy, he's going to be doing something spectacular to take the throne. Well, they don't realize how spectacular, and they don't realize what it is. So they come anyway to to Philip. And uh, the thing I want to point out is the connection between this and the previous uh, paragraph, in fact, the last verse that uh, Nate took us through. Last week's message I thought was fantastic. I love that so much. But it ended with the Pharisees saying, hey, the whole world has gone after him. Not realizing that here in the next verse, some Greek people would be coming. And the interesting thing about this is that after they said they want to see Jesus, and here's Philip and Andrew, who are both from Galilee, from this town of Bethsaida. Actually, they were both from that, that town. They both have Greek names. Um, much of Galilee is, um, is Gentile anyway. And so, but they seek out a couple of guys that they think will be maybe be sympathetic escorts to take them for an interview with Jesus. Um, but then these guys just drop off the map. You don't hear anything more about them. You don't know if Jesus met with them or not. And because that's not the point. The point of them being brought forward is what Jesus is going to say. And what he's going to say, it's like they're coming triggers, a big announcement. Um that just them showing up seems to be the significant point, that the Gentiles have come, but now he doesn't even talk to them that we know of, and instead he turns to this Gentile group, excuse me, Jewish group that's around him, the last time he will be with the crowd in the book of John, and he begins to say something about the cross and him being glorified and all of that. And this is what we know, that 
the mission that we know of as the church, Jews and Gentiles together and people of all races, what an appropriate passage actually for today when we think of, of uh, racial divides and people against each other and not, not being reconciled and all that. Reconciliation comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. But before there can be a great commission and the bringing in of the Gentiles, there first has to be a cross and a resurrection and an ascension. And then they begin to share the gospel across the world. Along with this is the last call of faith to the people of Jesus, the people that reject him. And this is how he talks about it. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, when he said that, if the Greeks were listening to that, they would think, okay, that's great. So it still sounds like coronation, doesn't it? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But what they don't realize is that it's not, he's not talking about bouquets and balloons. He's going to be talking about something much different from that. In fact, he will talk meanly about his death. But I think it's important that we remember that when the, when the hour comes, this is something that introduces a, 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 actually three parts of the glorification of Christ, but it begins with his death, then the resurrection, and then the ascension. We know it includes the ascension because chapter 13, verse 1, which will be our next sermon from John, he talks about um, his hour, and he says, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. So you can see how it includes even his, his going back to the Father. But it includes all three of these. Now, what I put up there is a, an outline of the book of John, which we have never gone through. Here we are in chapter 12 already. But I want, you to sh- I want to show you where uh, chapter 12 fits in, somewhere up here. Anyway, there's a prologue and there's an epilogue in the book of John, chapter 1 and chapter 21. There are 10 chapters in the book of signs. We've gone through these now, seven signs, beginning with changing of water into wine and ending with the raising of Lazarus. The very first one, Jesus says to his mother, my hour has not yet come. Now, when you get to chapter 12, Jesus will tell the people the hour has come. That's the verse we're in right now. And then we'll have the upper room. Now, Jesus is not with the crowd anymore. He's with his disciples, instructing them in the upper room, chapters 13 through 16. And then we have the amazing prayer of chapter 17. And it begins with these words, Father, the hour has come. So chapter two starts with, to his mother, the hour has not yet come. And now to his father, he says, the hour has come. And then you enter the hour itself. He is arrested and uh, crucified and then resurrected, chapters 18 through 20. And then the epilogue. That's kind of how the whole book of John spills out when you read it all. Well, what Jesus does at this point is throw water on... uh, the Greeks or any other enthusiasts that think the Messiah is just uh, coming in riding on a war horse. It's not that way. He's going to talk mostly about his dying, and that's where he goes immediately. Now, why would his dying be part of his glorification? That's all through the Gospel of John. It's explained in so many ways. I could, I could stop right here and go to those many passages that talk in, that, in those terms. But if we can understand 
Jesus hanging on the cross as a glory. You know, if you if you looked up the word glory in a pictorial dictionary, it it, it should have a, a picture of Jesus hanging in disgrace from a Roman cross. Because what Jesus being glorified means that the the heights of his character are shining out. And what would those be? That would be like his love. Uh, the extent of his suffering is the measure of his love. It is also an outshining of his commitment to justice. Because why suffer for sins if they don't really need to be punished? If God could just look at somebody and say, I have mercy on you. But we have a God who is so holy and a savior who is so holy that they must take punishment on themselves or, or on the sinner, one or the other, in order for there to be salvation and the extension of the love and mercy of God. So we could stop and, and talk about many things related to the cross um, as a depiction or a, uh, a highlighter of the, of the character of Christ. Well, we certainly see him in his courage. We see him in his, his compassion and, and, and just so many things that we know from the cross. And we know that this lifting up, that he's going he's gonna to call it a lifting up. We know that's one of the things we admire most about Jesus Christ is when we realize what he was willing to do in order to save us. Well, we want to transition to verse 24, and Jesus now will describe his death that was necessary for his glorification. So let's go to verse 24. Let me read this section quickly. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces a plentiful harvest. Now, maybe I just stop there. Now, at this point, you would think, okay, well, he's talking about his death. But, and you don't realize that he's talking in general principles. It applies to him, but it applies in various ways to all of us. Because then he goes to this. Any person who loves his life loses it. And the person who hates his life in this world will preserve it for eternal life. So who's going to let their life fall to the ground and then die? when they just love their life so much. They will guard every part of it. They will just, they won't, they, won't, uh, they won't want to die. So go back. At first, of course, he's talking about himself. A grain of wheat, this is an agricultural analogy. If you do any gardening, you know, if you're going to plant something. I know little kids, when they get a pumpkin seed, they don't want to put it in the ground because that's precious to them. But they, if, they, if they get smart, they realize you don't get more pumpkins unless you plant that little seed. And it's got to go to, and you never see it again. It's like it's died, like you buried it. It's like it died and it's buried. And then it comes out in a great harvest, a plentiful harvest. If, if, you, if you know zucchini, you plant a zucchini seed and you keep getting zucchini and they're bigger and bigger. It's amazing what you get out of one seed. Well, if it dies, it produces a plentiful harvest. Now he's talking about, of course, death and Resurrection and the ministry of resurrection, which in his case would be the, produce, the production of an amazing harvest of souls, saved souls, um, including Greek people. And then when he goes on through verses 25 and following, we realize that he is applying this principle to all of us. And we might say, okay, Lord, you do all the dying. That'll be just fine. And then we can live, live it up for ourselves but you realize that he is really talking about a path that where you join him in the signature of his life, which is suffering. And it has all these deep parts, what I just call hard and glorious. 
think I could put that up there. We have the hard parts and we have the glorious parts. But you don't get the glorious parts without the hard parts. So let me start reading in verse 25 again. Any person who loves his life loses it. That's the negative. But on the other side, the person who hates his life in this world, that's the hard part, will preserve it, guard it for eternal life. There's the glorious part. Or go to the next verse. If anyone serves me, serving him is hard. You want to be in charge. You don't want to give up your life that way. Well, I'm just going to serve Jesus. No, you want to be the king. No, you're not the king. You're the servant. But it says, if you want to serve me, then you're going to have to follow me. And wherever I am, my servant will be there too. There's the glory part. So you serve him, but you get to be wherever he is. And there is absolutely no greater blessing in all the world that you can think of than to be where Jesus is. And that is the great glorious part of this. And then the third one, then he says, if anyone serves me, he repeats that. And then he says, the father will honor him. So when you deserve, when you, yeah, when you serve the uh, despised son in a world of hate, that's, that's hard. Especially when the people that hate him then hate you too. But the father will honor you. And that is amazing. It depends what all that means to you, whether this is a great passage or not. Because if the glorious part doesn't mean anything to you, then you're never going to take on the hard parts of it. Now, I'm going to come back to hard and glorious at the end. But as we think about that, we realize that uh, this relinquishing of your life, this what he calls hatred, this is a Semitic way of talking. Remember how Jesus said, if you don't hate your father and your mother and your, all your relatives you have, some of them are easier to hate than others. But if you don't hate all these people, but then he says, and your own life also. This is uh, Luke, uh, yeah, Luke 14. You cannot be my disciple. Yet you, you just don't get on board at all. And then he talks about carrying your cross and all of that. These are amazing. Well, we call this the cost of discipleship. And we'd rather not do all of that. It is not natural for us to do all of this. But if we keep loving ourselves, we destroy ourselves. We lose ourselves. Because life is not for us. We were not designed for this. So I'll tell you how to have a disastrous week. So you're on Palm Sunday. Things are going great. But you know, so you got some hard things coming. They will get harder and harder in the very worst way if you do not, if you take it easy on your pride. And you think that week is all about you. All right. Now, the Father will honor you. That's kind of where he ends here. Um, it's, uh, and what we want to realize is that it's nevertheless a hard path. So Jesus himself is going to admit before this crowd of people, including his disciples, that he is deeply troubled. And this is really an amazing statement. It sounds a lot like Gethsemane, doesn't it? Um, this is, in, in short, the Gethsemane of the Gospel of John. Uh, troubled means moved or agitated or shaken, disturbed. Um, and why would that be? Because he's going to face such shame and torment during this week that he, know, he knows about that. It's coming. And so then he's wondering what to ask the Father. And we know in the Garden of 
of Gethsemane that he says, uh, let this cup pass from me. In this case, he's debating what, what is appropriate to say. And what am I to say? Father, save me from this hour? And he says, no. A very strong word, but it was for this very purpose that I came to this hour. I came here for this hour, this suffering that I don't want to go through. I came here for that. And so with unswerving devotion to his father, he then prays a different prayer. Father, glorify your name. Now God speaks to him. Now before I say something about that, I want to say something about Jesus' prayers. There's the prayer he doesn't pray and there's the prayer he does pray. Eugene Peterson says it like this. The prayer Jesus did not pray is as important as the prayer he did pray. The unprayed prayer is Jesus choosing hardship. And the prayed prayer is Jesus choosing glory for his father. I'm going to honor you. And so he says, Father, glorify your name. Now, it doesn't say, help me to glorify it, but it's implied in all of that. In fact, who really gets glorified in this passage? Uh, Jesus had said, now is the hour for the, what? For the Son of Man to be glorified. And now he prays that the Father would glorify his name. It's all really wrapped up together. The one cannot happen without the other. And so the best way to say it is that Jesus was living for why, why it's important to talk about this is that Jesus, as far as he was concerned, is there to make sure that the Father's character is displayed. And it's a selfless kind of thing. He's talked about it before, like in chapter 8, verse 50. I do not seek my own glory, but the glory of the one who sent me. But how will he glorify the Father's name? Only by going through this process where the Father, if the, with great pleasure, glorifies the Son. So, but Jesus is saying, I don't care what happens as long as your name is exalted. Glory to you, the outshining of all God's majesty through the cross and the resurrection, the ascension. Now, God speaks three times in the Gospels. Here it says, at this, a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. I will glorify it again. Uh, God spoke at the Baptist. The other ones aren't in John's gospel. This is the only time God speaks. And it's the only time God ever answers a prayer of Jesus. Jesus prayed many times in the gospels, about 19 different references to Jesus praying. Most of them do not tell what his words were when he did so. Uh, But three times in John, we know what Jesus said. Chapter 17, when we get to the great prayer of one of the great chapters of the Bible. I think of the New Testament, John 17 and Romans 8 are the richest chapters to me. But here, last chapter, actually, we had another time when Jesus, uh, uh, the words of Jesus are actually recorded. Remember how he said in verse 41, Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, and I said this on account of the people standing around, that they might believe that you sent me. Now, there's something kind of interesting about that, that the, exchange, the conversation that Jesus is extending to the Father is for the benefit of people around, and we're going to get a little bit of that here as well. Here's the voice of the Father 
speaking and saying, I have glorified, I will glorify it again. Now, I don't have time to stop here and give the five-hour lecture on the, on the fact that, the, uh, that God glorifying himself is the key idea in all the universe. I mean, that's just chapters and chapters of thought. Uh, you can read, uh, pick up almost any book by John Piper and there'll be a chapter on that. That God's, the purpose of creation, of existence, of all of that is the glory of God. God shining out in, in, uh, in all of his majesty. The full weight of God. The Hebrew word for glory means weight. And so the full weight of God when he says glorify your name, he means that God, he wants God to lift himself up and make his character unmistakably clear through all of these things, the suffering of Christ and the, and the, and the resurrection of Christ and all of this, that it would shout out the truth of the love of God, that it would shout out and blaze across the world the, the fact that God is just and that he will, not, uh, he will not save someone without punishing sin. And he does that through the Son. Uh, we could go into other aspects of God's character, but this is absolutely important to understanding almost well, pretty much every part of the Bible. Now, we could stop there and say more, but I want to talk about the crowd for a minute. Uh, oh, I forgot to put this up there. The prayer Jesus would not pray, hardness for me. He's choosing hardness. The prayer he prayed, glory to the Father. Uh, and then here's the crowd. So what do they hear? Well, it's kind of like when the Apostle Paul heard the voice of Jesus on the road to Damascus. The people around him didn't understand the words. And so the same here. When the crowd standing nearby heard it, they were saying it was thunder. Others were saying an angel spoke to him. Jesus answered, the voice didn't come because of me, but because of you. Now, what in the world does that mean? How does the voice, how does it come for the people when they can't even understand what it was rather than for Jesus? Well, first of all, understand this again is a Semitic contrast. So he says, it didn't come for me. It doesn't mean it didn't come at all for him. So it's a, it's a contrast. The voice didn't come because of me merely or primarily, even though you guys didn't understand it, it became, it became, it came because of you. Now, there's about three ways you can take that, if I can do this quickly. Uh, one would be this. I mean, I, he could be saying, I could use the encouragement, but if I'm encouraged by what I heard, then it's only for your benefit. I mean, it's not like I need that myself. He had already settled that where he said, I'm not going to pray, save me from this hour. I'm going to pray, let the glor God glorify your name. But it's a help to you guys. That's one way to take it. Another way to take it was this way. Uh, only I could understand what the voice said, but the fact that there's thunder going on here should show you there's something big happening here, and this is going to make you listen better to everything I'm going to share here and then watch carefully what happens in these next days as we move toward the cross and eventually the resurrection. Something cosmic is going on. That's the second way to take it. The third way is this. Now, most of your translations will have something like, uh, the voice didn't come um, for your sake, or for my sake, but for your sake. Do you have that like in the, uh, uh, okay. Uh, others say, on be it did not come, the voice did not come on behalf of me, but on behalf of you. 
Unfortunately, the words that usually are translated on behalf of or for, is, that's not the word that's used here. And that's why I translate it because of. Now, it can imply some of that, but there's another way to take this. When the people think that thunder has come, they wonder if maybe Jesus had said something wrong. Like there's some kind of blasphemy going on here. Because they heard him say, I have, they heard him say, Father, glorify your name. And then they hear this clap of thunder. They'd be like, if, if I blaspheme God and, and uh, lightning struck me, you would understand that, <laughs> that, that God had spoken. Uh, so they may have thought that that thunder was some kind of a threat or a warning against Jesus, that heaven is angry at him. And he says, no, it's not because of me. It's because of you. It is a warning to you to take what I'm saying seriously, and it is the sound of impending judgment. And that fits very, very well with what he's about to say. So I want you to uh, go to the next verse where it says, now is the time for the judgment of this world. So you see how that would all go together if you take it that way? Now Jesus is going <clears> to <throat> excuse me, talk about three things. He's going to explain in some ways how his death glorifies God's name because his death will involve the judgment of the world. That actually asks and answers three amazing questions that have been there since the beginning of time. Uh, when is the world going to get judged? Because the world has been walking in sin for a very long time. What's going to happen to the devil ever since Eden? In fact, when is that thing going to happen? John, uh, Remember Genesis 3? where it talks about the seed is going to come and crush the head of the serpent and the serpent will, will bruise his heel. So when is that going to happen and who is that? And the, other, the last question is, how are people actually saved from judgment? And so he's going to get into that. Three short statements. The first one is this. Now is the time for the world to be judged or the judgment of this world. Now, there's two ways to take that. Now is the time for the judgment of this world. Now, you could think that that is the world judging Jesus, the judgment of this world on him. They're cursing him and humiliating him while God is glorifying him. But uh, we know that, that that really is not what he's saying, that he, uh, he, this judgment of the world is Jesus judging them or God judging them through the cross. Now, earlier, of course, Jesus said, I didn't come for judgment. But the cross inevitably divides. People that reject the light, he talked about in 319, automatically are under a condemnation. The cross is both judgment and salvation. So at the cross, the world gets divided. Those who judged him bring upon themselves or put themselves under their own judgment and sentence. Now that's one way to take that. There's another way to take that as well, and that is... Uh, now is the time for the judgment of this world. That is for the judgment that falls on this world to actually fall on me. In other words, I am going to suffer for the sins of the world. Remember what John said when he saw Jesus, John the Baptist. He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away, takes up and bears away the sin of the world. And so there is this sense that if judgment is falling on Jesus for the sins of the world, that... Uh, that he is, uh, that the judgment of the world is actually taking place through the cross. That is a very deep and important concept in other passages. Now, the other part that he brings out in this verse is, has to do with the ruler of this world. Now, people listening to that, they might have thought that was Jesus. Now is the time 
Of course, the world is going to judge me, and then the ruler of this world, which is me, here I am, I just came in, the Palm Sunday deal, but I'm going to be cast outside. In fact, he is. He's cast outside. He's crucified outside the camp. Um, but this is not Jesus. <laughs> now, Satan has not been called the ruler of this world up till now. He will in chapter 14, verse 30, and in verse 11 of chapter 16. And that's why we know for sure that this is referring to Satan and not Jesus. But now at this, po- at this point, Satan is going to be dethroned. Now, we know that he is not uh, destroyed, right? He is cast outside. What does that mean? Because we hear that he's like a roaring lion prowling around seeking someone to devour that First Peter 5. Um, and we've all had our episodes with uh, temptations and whatever we know. Um, in some ways, uh, Satan seems to be alive and well, but I will tell you, he is deeply crippled. Chapter 12 of Revelation says, the followers of the lamb overcome the dragon that would be Satan on account of the blood of the lamb. It's the cross of Christ that uh, removes the power of Satan in this way, uh, three ways. First of all, sin and its condemnation and its power against you is removed. The second thing is through the resurrection of Christ, death and the fear of death are dealt with, Hebrews chapter 2. And the third thing is that whatever, um, whatever blasphemy Satan brought in Eden against God, that God is not loving, God is not truthful, God is not just. I don't have time to go back there and trace all of those out, but the, the cross negates every one of those blasphemies. And so uh, the cross shatters Satan's lies. Anyone that knows the cross knows that Satan is lying when he says, well, God doesn't really care about you. God doesn't really love you. Or you can do what you want. It doesn't matter. God, God, you can just get along. You don't ever have to give an account to God. That's a lie. The cross tells you that. The cross is the most amazing scandal. (laughs) uh, If sin can be forgiven without bearing punishment, then that was the greatest crime that was ever done against anybody when the father had his son crucified. Well, the day will come when Satan, of course, is cast in the lake of fire. But, and we don't know why the delay. What did God have in mind? Why didn't he just toss him out completely at this point? We don't know. But there's a third thing. Jesus says in verse 32, as for me... When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all to me. And then a parenthesis, he was saying this to indicate what sort of death he was about to die. Lifting up, it's kind of a two-way thing, isn't it? He's lifted up, it's... An exaltation, glorification, he's already talked about that, but it's also a being put up on a cross. So when he says, he was saying, indicating what sort of death he was about to die, he's saying, I'm not going to be stoned. I'm going to be lifted up. He'd already talked about being lifted up to um, Nicodemus when he was talking to him in chapter 3. He said, even as the Son of Man will be lifted up, in what way? Like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. 
And that's a model of faith. So if we say, what sort of death? We mean it's a crucifixion, not a stoning. We mean it's like Moses, that when you look on Jesus, that is the, in faith, that is where healing or salvation comes from. And then we know it as an exaltation and a glory. And then he has that, he has that word, I will draw all to me. And that is, we find out through that, that the cross is, a, is bringing all the focus on Jesus Christ. No longer on sin and all the problems of this world, but on our Savior himself. Now, there's a tricky part to this, and it's in the word all. Um, A lot of translations have all men or all people. It could actually be translated all things. But there's no things, people, or men there. It's just all. And when you translate it that way, it, it... helps you understand that there's some different ways to take it. Now, if it meant all people, we know that's contradicted all over the place. He's already just talked about people who love their lives will lose them. We got Judas listening to Jesus right now, and we know that uh, in the next chapter, he's going to identify him as as a one who was lost, who was never given to Christ to be drawn to, to him. We know from 1 Corinthians 1 that the cross is to... Jews, a stumbling block to Gentiles, it's, a, it's foolishness. But to us who are saved, it is the power and the wisdom of God. And so there's always a variation. It's, it's not, you can't go here and say, well, everyone's going to get saved. That's uh, not going to happen. That, so that's not what this is talking about. Um, a second way to take it would be just to remember the Greeks are, had, had just come up. They said the whole world is going after him. And so this would, so you could think about it. This is not talking about all people without exception. It's talking about all people without distinction. Jews, Gentiles, all kinds of people. All kinds are drawn to Jesus through the cross. So he's lifted up. He dies. He's exalted. And people from all races, all tribes, all peoples are part of that ultimate flock of God. And a third way to take it would be that he's just saying, all my sheep. So the word draw, we've already been familiarized with that from chapter 6, where the Father draws people to the Son. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. So this would be a drawing to salvation of, uh, in this case, would be all the sheep that God has given him. It's the all of all that the Father gives me will come to me, chapter 6, verse 37. Or from chapter 17, verse 2, the Son gives eternal life to all whom you have given him. God gets great glory for this. In fact, the gospel can be good news to the whole world only because of the cross. Why do we take the gospel to Liberia? Why is Karen in Turkey? Why, why do we pray for people in various places to, to know Christ, even though there are f- widely diverse cultures and languages and all of that? Because of this. Because all sorts of people who are chosen to be part of the bride of Christ or the flock of God, hear of the cross of Christ and the cross of Christ and his sacrifice draws them to Jesus, our Lord. So we give glory to God for that. So your judgment is over because it fell on Jesus. Satan has no claim on you, no power over you, and Christ has won your heart through his blood. 
We can stop right now. It's time for worship. But we're not quite done. The crowd is confused. So let's go through this quickly. The crowd responded. We heard from the law. This is what we learned by reading the law, that Messiah lasts forever. And you could go to, oh, uh, Isaiah 9, Ezekiel 37, and other passages give the indication of the, the rule of Messiah is eternal. Uh, and so... Then they, so they ask a question. Well, if that's the case, what's, what's this about dying? How then can you say the son of man must be lifted up? You notice how they, they, they understood what he was talking about when he said lifted up, that he was talking about dying. And so then they ask the question of the, out of their confusion then, who is the son of man that you're talking about? Because the son of man we know anything about is this eternal Messiah. Now you're talking about dying. What, how does all that work? And so Jesus said to them something that really doesn't answer their question. In fact, he, asked, he, he shares something that's, I would just call it pretty cryptic. He uses metaphorical language, light again. And um, he says, the light is among you for a little longer. Um, while you have the light, Walk. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness master you or overcome you. The person who walks in the darkness has no idea where he's going. He's just plain lost. He's confused. It's while you have the light that you must believe in the light. That's how you become sons of light. Now, the general meaning of this is easy. You need to recognize the time is short to respond to me. That's all he's saying to them. Here's his last appeal to this Jewish crowd. He's not going to talk to them again in the book of John. And so here it is. If you want to be sons of light, you're going to have to make your move now and believe in the light. But the fact that he never talks really about himself and all that, it appears here that this is his way of even obscuring his last appeal. He has spoken to them and proven his his deity, his messiahship, and everything so many times. And you'll see when we get into the next sermon how, why I would say this. Because look what it says in, at the very end here. Jesus finished saying these things and then went away where they couldn't find him. This is what I call a, a judicial act of closing the book. I'm done talking to you. Uh, we're not going to do this anymore. He's acting out the sentence on unbelief, that God gives you up to your selfish, dark, blind, ungrateful hearts. All right, now I'm, I'm, I'm done with the passage. I, I want to just talk a little bit about this hardness, glorious theme, because there are two things here. You're looking at a tough week. Uh, if I had more time, I would maybe trace out what that might look like, but uh, I want you to face that week like Jesus did, what he modeled and how he taught us. And the way he did this, uh, I'm just going to go to the prayers. He prayed. I want you to think about the prayer he did not pray. I want you to think about the prayer he did pray. If you refuse to pray the prayer that he refused to pray, what you are saying to your heart is, I embrace hardship as a calling. Hardship is okay. Um, there's a certain adversity that is our assignment in this life, and especially as followers of Christ. He, he talked about it in terms of taking up your cross. 
Now, ours is not as hard as his. We don't have a cross where we bear the sins of the, of the world. So you have your week. Now, I was thinking about my week and his week. So let's say this week, one of my, one of my best friends hurt my feelings with a joke at my expense. What's his week look like? Oh, every one of his best friends deserted him and exposed him to the mockery of a nation. Oh, I got an anonymous hate letter. He got more than bad mail. He got nailed. I keep getting annoying calls about bills I cannot pay. He paid bills he never owed. I was slandered by someone that I'd helped. I'd given him $20. He had no food. Jesus was rejected by people for whom he had done nothing but kindness for 2,000 years in innumerable acts of benevolence and mercy. You know, most of the flack I get, I, I deserve, while I deserve none of the blessings. I mean, I, let's just be honest. He deserved nothing but kindness, and then he got nothing but flack. You know, I ran out of pills, and I had two bad days of back pain. He took every back pain and every headache and every cancer and every broken heart. He carried them along with the sorrows and iniquities of us all. Wow, I felt whipped. He was whipped. <laughs> My wife didn't kiss me. Judas did kiss him. I whined. He wept. I cried. He died. I was nailed with a ticket. He was ticketed with a nail. I phoned home so I could cry on someone's shoulder. He called home and no one answered. This week someone hung up on me. Someone hung him up. Now, I'm not downplaying what we have to face because Jesus says here, I have a way for you to face life, but you're going to have to say no to yourself. Now, that Jesus did not pray, Father, get, uh, save me from this hour, makes it possible for us also not to pray it, to accept hardship as our calling. In fact, our lives are harder than before we knew Christ in many ways. You think about that. You know, other, before you knew Christ, you could avoid a lot of hardness. You keep your money for yourself. You don't have to put anything in the offering boxes back here. Uh, you can sleep in on Sundays, like some of you are doing now. You're going to watch this later. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things. Life is harder. You don't indulge yourselves without guilt now that you know Jesus. You don't get to keep all your money, as I was just talking about. You can't immerse yourself in amusements all the time. You don't get to waste your time and enthusiasm on mere stuff. Sunday is not yours to burn. Uh, you can't worship your own opinions like you used to. You have to apologize and you have to forgive. You have to be gentle. And um, here's an enemy. You got to reject sweet revenge because you're going to love them and you're going to serve them and you're going to pray for them. But some days we just have to realize that all of this is still sweet hardship because of where it all goes. And so you do pray the second prayer. Let's, let's just put this up. There's plenty that can make this week hard, but there's nothing anyone can do to you that can keep the Father from being glorified. So as Jesus prayed, Father, glorify your name. We embrace 
this higher glory because God in every way, in every second, in every millisecond of this universe is doing this one thing. He is glorifying his name. And the father says, I glorified it and I will glorify it when he is speaking to Jesus and he would say the same to you to make his glory known. I admit that this path is hard and troubling, but it is also best because it allows me and you to glorify God's name, the Father's name, and display the heart of Jesus. Now, we'd like to get all of that hardship out of the way to begin with. Just do it in one big chunk. And so let me, let me end with this little thing from Fred Craddock. He was preaching about this, giving up your life and all of this stuff. And he said this, he said, we think giving our all to the Lord is like taking a $1,000 bill, laying it on the table, said, here's my life, Lord, I'm giving it all. Now, this is what a week looks like. He says this, but the reality for most of us is that he sends us to the bank, has us cash in the $1,000 for quarters. And we go through life putting out 25 cents here, 25 cents there, listen to the neighbor's kids' troubles instead of saying get lost, go to a committee meeting, give up a cup of water to a shaky old man in a nursing home, and you go on and on with those. And so he says this, usually giving our life to Christ isn't glorious. It's done in all those little acts of love, 25 cents at a time. It would be easy to go out in a flash of glory. It's harder to live the Christian life little by little over the long haul. So, Let's see what that looks like this week. Showing the glory of God a quarter at a time. That's what I want us to think about. Let's pray. We love you, Father. We thank you for this amazing passage. I'm sure we could keep meditating on it for the rest of our lives and not and not either fully understand it or in many ways uh, embrace it in our, in our own lives. So we pray. You will help us to give up our lives, to embrace the life of hardship so that we might in turn embrace the life of glory. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.